Chapter 23 The Mortification of Sin We have already considered verses 27 through 30 as a whole, in order that we might understand our Lord's view of sin over against the teaching of the Pharisees and scribes. Now let us look at verses 29 and 30 in particular. Our Lord, having dealt with the whole nature of sin, did not leave it at that point, for in thus describing it, he also, in a sense, indicated the way in which we are to deal with it. He wants us to see the character of sin in such a way that we shall abhor and forsake it. It is this second aspect of the matter that we must now consider. We must start first at the point of pure interpretation. What exactly is meant by the words, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out, and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body shall be cast into hell. There are many who think that these extraordinary and startling statements should be interpreted like this. Our Lord, they maintain, has been emphasizing the importance of a clean heart. He says that it is not enough that you do not commit an act of adultery. It is the heart that matters. They imagine that at that point there was a kind of objection, perhaps expressed or perhaps our Lord sensed it. Or perhaps he anticipated an objection which would be put like this. We are so constituted that our very faculties inevitably lead us to sin. We have eyes and we see, and as long as we have them, it is no use telling us that we must have a clean heart. If I see with my right eye and that leads to certain consequences, what is the use of telling me to improve and clean it? It is an impossible demand. The trouble with me really is the fact that I have a right eye and a right hand. Then they interpret this statement as meaning that our Lord replies to such an objection, Well, if you tell me it is your right eye that leads to sin, pluck it out, and if you tell me it is your right hand, cut it off. In other words, they assert, He met the objectors on their own level. The Pharisees, they try to evade the issue by saying that the trouble is not so much in their own desires and hearts as in the very fact that they can see. That inevitably leads to temptation, and temptation leads to sin. It is an attempt again at an avoidance of his teaching. So he, as it were, turns back and says, Very well. If you say your whole trouble is due to your right eye and hand, get rid of them. Furthermore, they would have us understand that by saying that, of course, our Lord is ridiculing that whole position because he only refers to the right eye and hand, whereas if a man plucks out his right eye, he still has his left, and he sees the same thing with the left as with the right. And if he chops off the right hand, he's not solved his problem because his left hand is still there. Thus, they say, our Lord ridicules this whole conception of holiness and the sanctified life, which would regard it as a matter of our physical being and shows that if a man is ever to have a clean and pure heart along that line, well, to put it absolutely plainly, both eyes must be plucked out, both hands, both feet must be cut off. He must mutilate himself, in a sense, until he is no longer a man. Now, I do not want to reject that exposition entirely. There is undoubtedly true teaching in it. But whether or not it is an exact explanation of what our Lord says at this point, I am not so certain. It seems to me that a better interpretation of this statement is that our Lord was anxious to teach at one and the same time the real and horrible nature of sin, the terrible danger in which sin involves us, and the importance of dealing with sin and getting rid of it.
So he deliberately puts it in this way. He talks about the precious things, the eye and the hand, and he singles out in particular the right eye and the right hand. Why? At that time, people held the view that the right eye and hand were more important than the left. It is not difficult to see why they believed that. We all know the importance of the right hand and the similar relative importance of the right eye. Now, our Lord takes up that common popular belief, and what he says, in effect, is this. If the most precious thing you have, in a sense, is the cause of sin, get rid of it. Sin is as important as that in life, and its importance can be put in that way. It seems to me that that is a much more natural interpretation of this statement than the other. He is saying that however valuable a thing may be to you in and of itself, if it is going to trap you and cause you to stumble, get rid of it, throw it away. Such is his way of emphasizing the importance of holiness and the terrible danger which confronts us as the result of sin. How then are we to deal with this problem of sin? I would remind you again that it is not merely a question of not committing certain acts. It is a question of dealing with the pollution of sin in the heart, this force that is within us, these powers which are resident in our very natures as the result of the fall. These are the problems, and merely to deal with them in a negative manner is not enough. We are concerned about the state of our hearts. How are we to face these problems? Here our Lord indicates a number of points which we must observe and grasp. The first, obviously, is that we must realize the nature of sin and also its consequences. We have already been looking at that, and he himself starts with it once more. There is no doubt whatever that an inadequate view of sin is the chief cause of a lack of holiness and sanctification, and indeed of most of the false teachings with respect to sanctification. All your antinomianisms throughout the centuries, all the tragedies that have ever followed the perfectionist movements, have really arisen because of false notions concerning sin and a failure to see that not only is sin a power and something which leads to guilt, but that there is such a thing as the pollution of sin. Though a man does not do anything wrong, he is still sinful. His nature is sinful. We must grasp the idea of sin as distinct from sins. We must see it as something that leads to the actions and that exists apart from them. Perhaps the most convenient way of putting all this is to remind ourselves of Palm Sunday, a day which brings us right back to all the details of the earthly life of the Son of God. There he is going up to Jerusalem for the last time. What is the meaning of all this? Why is he going to that cross and to that death? There is only one answer to that question. Sin is the cause, and sin is something that can be dealt with in that way only and in no other. Sin is something, let me say it with reverence, that has created a problem even in heaven. It is as profound a problem as that, and we must start by realizing this. Sin in you and in me is something that caused the Son of God to sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. It caused him to endure all the agony and the suffering to which he was subjected. And finally, it caused him to die upon the cross. That is sin. 
we can never remind ourselves of that too frequently. Is it not our danger, I think we all must admit it, to think of sin merely in terms of ideas of morality, to catalog sins and to divide them into great and small and various other classifications? There is a sense, no doubt, in which there is some truth in these ideas. But there is another sense in which such classifications are all wrong and indeed dangerous. For sin is sin, and always sin. That is what our Lord is emphasizing. It is not, for example, only the act of adultery. It is the thought and the desire also which is sinful. That is the fact on which we must concentrate. We must realize what a terrible thing sin is. So let us cease to be so interested in our moral classifications, and let us cease to think even of actions in terms of moral catalogs. But let us think of everything in terms of the Son of God and what it meant for Him, and what it led to in His life and in His ministry. That is the way to think of sin. Of course, as long as we think of it only in these moral terms, we may feel smug and contented because we have not done certain things. That is an utterly false conception, and what we have to realize is that because we are what we are, the Son of God had to come from heaven and go through all that and even die that cruel death upon the cross. You and I are such that all that became necessary. Such is this pollution of sin that is in us. We can never look too often at the nature of sin and its consequences. One of the most direct roads to holiness always is to consider Him and His suffering and agony. Nowhere is the nature of sin displayed in such terrible and awful colors as in the death of the blessed Son of God. The second thing we must realize is the importance of the soul and its destiny. It is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Notice that our Lord says this twice in order to emphasize it. The soul, he says, is so important that if your right eye is the cause of you being trapped by sin, you should pluck it out and get rid of it. Not, as I am going to show you, in a physical sense. There are many things in this life and world which in and of themselves are very good, right, and profitable. But our Lord tells us here that if even those things trap us, we must put them on one side. He put it still more strongly on one occasion when he said, If any man hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, 26. This means that it does not matter who or what it is that comes between us and him. If it is harmful to the soul, it must be hated and put on one side. It does not mean that a man who is a Christian has of necessity to hate his loved ones. Obviously not, for our Lord told us to love even our enemies. It simply means that anything which militates against the soul and its salvation is an enemy at that point and must be dealt with as such. It is our misuse of these things, our putting them in the wrong position that is wrong. And that is the point which he stresses here. If my faculties, propensities, and abilities do lead me to sin, then I must forsake them and get rid of them. I must put even those on one side. If you examine your own experience, I think you will see at once what this means. The trouble is that because of sin, we tend to pervert everything. 
Under the pure, all things are pure. Yes, but as we said earlier, we are not pure. And the result is that even pure things at times become impure. Our Lord here shows us that the importance of the soul and its destiny is such that everything must be subservient to it. Everything else must be secondary where this is concerned, and we must examine the whole of our life and see to it that this is ever in the forefront of our considerations. That is his message, and he puts it in this striking and emphatic manner. Your most important possession, your right eye even, if it is trapping you, must be plucked out. Nothing must be allowed to come between you and your soul's eternal destiny. That, then, is the second great principle. I wonder whether it is ever in the forefront in our considerations. Do we all realize that the most important thing we have to do in this world is to prepare ourselves for eternity? There is no question at all about that. This is not in any way to detract from the importance of life in this world. It is important. It is God's world, and we are to live a full life here. Yes, but only as those who are preparing themselves for eternity and for the glory that awaits us. It is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, that we should, as it were, be cripples while we are here, in order to make certain that when we get there, we shall stand in his presence with joy and with glory. Oh, how sadly we neglect the culture of the soul, how negligent we are, about our eternal destiny. We are also very concerned about this life, but are we equally concerned about our soul and spirit and our eternal destiny? That is the question our Lord is asking us. It is tragic that we are so negligent about the eternal and are so concerned about that which must inevitably come to an end. It is better to be a cripple in this life, says our Lord, than to lose everything in the next. Put your soul in its eternal destiny before everything else. It may mean that you will not get promotion in your work or that you will not do as well as somebody else. Well, what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That is the calculation. It is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10.28 The third principle is that we must hate sin and do all we can to destroy it at all costs within ourselves. You remember how the psalmist puts it? Ye that love the Lord hate evil. We must train ourselves to hate sin. In other words, we must study it and understand its working. I think we have been very negligent in this respect. And here we are in very striking and pathetic contrast to those great men whom we call the Puritans. They used to analyze sin and expose it, with the result that they were laughed at and were called specialists in sin. Let the world laugh if it likes, but that is the way to become holy. Look at it. Read the biblical description of it. Analyze it. And the more we do so, the more we shall hate it and do all we can to get rid of it at all costs 
and to destroy it out of our lives. The next principle is that we must realize that the ideal in this matter is to have a clean and pure heart, a heart that is free from lusts. The idea is not simply that we be free from certain actions, but that our hearts should become pure. So we come back again to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Our standard must always be a positive one. We must never think of holiness merely in terms of not doing certain things. Every type of holiness teaching, which simply ends at that, and which tells us not to do certain things for a certain period in the year, is always negative. The true teaching, however, is always positive. Of course we must not do certain things. But the Pharisees were expert at that, and they stopped there. No, says our Lord, you must aim at a heart that is clean and pure. A heart in every thought renewed and filled with love divine, perfect and right and pure and good, a copy, Lord, of thine. In other words, our ambition should be to have a heart which never knows bitterness, envy, jealousy, hate, or spite, but is ever full of love. That is the standard. And again, I think it is quite obvious that this is the point at which we often fail. We have only a negative conception of holiness, and therefore we feel self-satisfied. If we examined our heart, if we came to know what the Puritans always called the plague of our own heart, it would promote holiness. But we do not like examining our hearts. Far too often, those of us who rejoice in the name of evangelical are perfectly happy because we are orthodox and because we are unlike those liberals or modernists and various other sections of the church which are obviously wrong. So we sit down complacent and satisfied, feeling that we have arrived and that we have only to maintain our position. But that means that we do not know our own hearts, and our Lord calls for a pure heart. You can commit sin in your heart, he says, without anybody knowing it. And you may still look perfectly respectable, and nobody would guess what is going on in your imagination. But God sees it, and in the sight of God, it is awful, foul, ugly, filthy. Sin in the heart. The last principle is the importance of the mortification of sin. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. Now, mortification is a great subject. If you're interested in it, you should read a book, The Mortification of Sin, by that great Puritan, Dr. John Owen. What does the term mean? There are two views on this subject. There is a false conception of mortification which says that we must literally cut off our hands and throw them away. It is the view which regards sin as being resident in the physical frame, and which therefore deals severely with the physical body as such. There were many in the early days of Christianity who literally cut off their hands and thought they were carrying out the injunctions of the Sermon on the Mount by so doing. They interpreted our Lord's word here exactly as do others, whom we shall consider later, who have taken the teaching about turning the other cheek in that literal, unintelligent manner. They say, it is the word, 
There it is, and we must carry it out as it is. But they were still left with the left eye and hand, and they still sinned. In the same way, the idea that celibacy is essential to sanctification and holiness belongs to the same category. Any teaching that makes us live an unnatural life is not New Testament holiness. To argue thus is the negative view of mortification, and it is false. What is the true view? It is to be found in many places in the New Testament. Take, for instance, Romans 8.13, where Paul says, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And in 1 Corinthians 9.27, he expresses it thus, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. What does he mean? Well, this is what the authorities on the Greek words tell us. He punches his body and knocks it about until it is black and blue in order to keep it down. That is the mortification of the body. In Romans 13, 14, he says, Make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Now, these are things which we must do. Instead of let go and let God, or receive this marvelous experience and then you will have nothing to do, we are rather told, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Colossians 3, 5. That is the Apostle's teaching. Mortify through the Spirit the deeds of the body. Keep under the body. And our Lord says, If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off. It is the same principle everywhere. These are things which we must do. What does it mean? Again, I am merely going to give some indication of the principles. First, we must never feed the flesh. Make not provision for the flesh, says Paul, to fulfill the lusts thereof. There is a fire within you. Never bring any oil anywhere near it, because if you do, there will be a flame and there will be trouble. Do not give it too much food, which being interpreted means this. Among other things, never read anything that you know will do you harm. I referred to that earlier, and I repeat it again, for these matters are very practical. Do not read those reports in the newspapers which are suggestive and insinuating and which you know always do you harm. Don't read them. Pluck out your eye. They are of no value to anybody. But alas, there they are in the paper, and they pander to the public taste. The majority like that sort of thing, and you and I by nature like it. Well, then, don't read it. Pluck out your eye. The same is true of books, especially novels, radio programs, television, and also the cinema. We must come down to these details. These things are generally a source of temptation, and when you give time and attention to them, you are making provision for the flesh. You are adding a little fuel to the flame. You are feeding the thing you know is wrong. And we must not do so. But, you say, it is educational. Some of those books are written by marvelous people, and if I do not know these things, I shall be considered an ignoramus. Our Lord's reply is that, for the sake of your soul, you had better be an ignoramus, if you know it does harm to know these things. Even the most valued thing must be sacrificed. It also means avoidance of what the Bible calls 
foolish talking and jesting, stories and jokes thought to be clever, but which are insinuating and polluting. You will often get that kind of thing with its cleverness, subtlety, and wit from highly intelligent men. The natural man admires it all, but it leaves a nasty taste in the mouth. Reject it. Say you do not want it, that you are not interested. You may offend people by saying so. Well, offend them if that is their mentality and morality. Offend them, I say, for the sake of your soul. Again, we must be careful in the company that we keep. Let me put it like this We must avoid everything that tends to tarnish and hinder our holiness. Abstain from all appearance of evil, which means avoid every form of evil. It does not matter what form it takes. Anything I know does me harm, anything that arouses and disturbs, shakes my composure, no matter what it is, I must avoid it. I must keep under my body, I must mortify my members. That is what it means, and we must be strictly honest with ourselves. But someone may ask at this point Are you not teaching a kind of morbid scrupulosity? Is not life going to be rather wretched and miserable? Well, there are people who become morbid. But if you want to know the difference between them and what I am teaching, think of it in this way. Morbid scrupulosity is always concerned about itself, its state and condition, and its own achievements. True holiness, on the other hand, is always concerned about pleasing God, glorifying Him, and ministering to the glory of Jesus Christ. If you and I keep that ever in the foreground of our minds, we need not be very worried about becoming morbid. All that will be at once avoided if we do it for His sake, instead of spending the whole of our time feeling our spiritual pulse and taking our spiritual temperature. The next principle I would lay down would be this that we must deliberately restrain the flesh and deal with every suggestion and insinuation of evil. In other words, we must watch and pray. We must all be concerned to do as the Apostle Paul says, I keep under my body. If Paul needed to do it, how much more so the rest of us? Those are things that you and I have to do ourselves. They will not be done for us. I do not care what experience you have or may have had, nor how much you have been filled with the Spirit. If you read suggestive matter in the newspaper, you will probably be guilty of sin. You will sin in your heart. We are not machines. We are told that we ourselves must put these things into practice. That in turn leads me to the last great principle, which I put in this form. We must realize once more the price that had to be paid to deliver us from sin. To the true Christian, there is no greater stimulus and incentive in the fight to mortify the deeds of the body than this. How frequently we are reminded that our Lord's object in coming into the world and enduring all the shame and the suffering of death upon the cross was to deliver us from this present evil world, to redeem us from all iniquity, and to separate unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. It was all designed in order that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. If his love and his sufferings mean anything to us, they will inevitably lead us to agree with Isaac Watts that such love 
demands my soul, my life, my all. Finally, these considerations must have brought us to see our absolute need of the Holy Spirit. You and I have to do these things, yes, but we need the power and the help that the Holy Spirit alone can give us. Paul put it like this, If ye, through the Spirit, do mortify the deeds of the body, the Holy Spirit's power will be given to you. He has been given if you are a Christian. He is in you. He is working in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. If we realize the task we have to do, and long to do it, and are concerned about this purification, if we start with this process of mortification, He will empower us. That is the promise. So we must not do those things which we know to be wrong. We act as empowered by Him. Here it is, all in one phrase. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The two sides are absolutely essential. If we try to mortify the flesh alone in our own strength and power, we shall produce an utterly false type of sanctification, which is not really sanctification at all. But if we realize the power and the true nature of sin, if we realize the awful grip it has on man and its polluting effect, then we shall realize that we are poor in spirit and utterly feeble, and we shall plead constantly for that power which the Holy Spirit alone can give us. And with this power, we shall proceed to pluck out the eye and cut off the hand, mortify the flesh, and thus deal with the problem. In the meantime, He is still working in us, and we shall go on until finally we shall see Him face to face and stand in His presence, faultless and blameless, without spot and without rebuke.